Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. All right, welcome back. So I'm Dennis and today I'm with Eric, a Special Forces Battalion Surgeon. And we're going to talk about the logistics of setting up a blood program for his unit. Um, hey, welcome, Eric. Hey, Dennis. What's going on? <laughs> awesome. So, um, Eric, ultimately, why did you why did you start this blood program and not just stick with the normal crystalloid colloid resuscitation? Right. So, it, right now, it seems the to be coming back in vogue the uh, the whole blood transfusion uh, in general. Uh, it, it's definitely more common even in the hospitals you look at one to one to one trying to mimic whole blood more or less so really uh, looking at studies coming out of the field whole blood seems to be the way to go that guys tend to do better um, so that was kind of the driving force behind us setting up the program this uh, it looks like the literature supports it right now okay. um, so your unit you decided to go with the O low tighter um, transfusions why not uh, type specific or, or A for A and O for everyone else? Right, so you know a couple of reasons. One is you know even when you enroll them in this program they really do a quite an extensive screening so looking at other communicable diseases which you know we, we've even found a case of Chagas in one of our guys mm -hmm. previously exposed so that was just kind of interesting but uh, as a whole you know you look at what's the the trend out there and, and seeing what the Rangers have done with the Rolo program um, and, and reading their studies and, and the Norwegian study before that, it really seems like uh, low O titer, you're going to have your best outcomes as far as transfusion reactions. Um, in the end, when a guy really needs blood, you know, you're going to give him whatever you have available. Um, uh, resuscitate now and, and restore that shock state early right. um, as, as they tend to do better. But uh, it, it seemed like the, the, the Rolo program and having the low O titer uh, in general guys do better. So. Um, when you're dealing with teams of 12 or more, uh, especially when you add in uplift up there, it's, it's possible. So it's, it's, you know, if you get at least a couple, one to two low O titers per team, uh, that's kind of a win there. Those are your prime candidates to get the transfusion first um, to your patient. Okay. So once you got command buy-in, what were really the steps in order to uh, begin this process? Well, you know, it, it was a... A fair amount of logistics to, to setting up with the timing because really the the most difficult time with dealing with the, the soft community is the competing requirements for time you know training other deployments uh, assignments and uh, so getting all the guys in because uh, really you want max participation for this really to get the uh, the, the chart you know so you have a table of you know who's the best candidate for transfusion on your team and, and being able to go down that list you really need the whole team involved with it or at least the majority um, so really setting up the logistics for us, you know, a common choke point being SRC, you know, we were able to funnel them through that way and get the results back within a couple weeks. So um, sending it out to the team so they could set it up as they moved into theater. Um, really, initially, the biggest challenge was finding out where to go, you know, because, uh, you know, everyone looking at the labs and the extensive list that, you know, that you need, it's, it's more than just getting antibodies to, you know, the, the blood groupings. They really do an extensive screening. and. Um, part of the program that they have set up through the blood donation center is they do the screening themselves there, um, which is kind of a challenge too, because you know as a provider, I'd I think I could screen people, but uh, as part of their protocol, they, they screen them, they ask the questions to determine risk, 
Um, they do the blood titering and then screen for other communicable diseases. And so, uh, and, and from there they're enrolled in the program and uh, it's good for, I believe, a year or two. Um, and then you have to go, have them go back through and draw another uh, blood level. Um, so it's definitely a high maintenance program, but I think when you look at the full spectrum of uh, treatments, when someone's uh, declared themselves needing blood, um, I teach my guys, you know, it's part of the, the overall hemorrhage protocol, you know, massive hemorrhage protocol. You know, you're looking at TXA, FDP, and whole blood transfusion. And so really having this set up in, in your team is an integral part of that. Right. So just quick stepping back to the logistics part. Um, you you guys didn't have to, you know, order each individual test. This seems like this was a already a, a process that was in place that you just needed to plug into. Yeah, currently at our unit here, there's, there was no other units enrolled in the program or using it actively. But at the blood donation center, um, it's a national registry, um, so they are able to pull up the complete impanelment. Um, more or less, you can probably do about 10 to 15 guys in an hour. Um, they, they handle it internally. They were able to, with one of our companies, uh, were able to pull up the blood bus and, and come by the unit itself and, and have their people come inside and do the questions and, and do the blood draw. So it was fairly user friendly. Um, they, they get the complete list of names and socials and, and contact information. Um, and, and from there, you just get an Excel spreadsheet in the end, you know, mm -hmm. from your point of contact at the blood donor center. So it's it's once you have the contacts there and once you've cleared the white space on your calendar and the commands right. bought into it and they're getting, you know, kind of getting their guys where they need to be, um, it really happens on its own. It's just going through the widgets of, of getting those things to all connect. Okay. So once you've gotten all these widgets to connect and you've, you've kind of gone through this process at, at least once, if you had to do it again, if you had to do this process again, what would you have done differently? So it, it was convenient going through SRC and, and getting a common choke point for everyone, but I think there's utility in, in working it into your training. I think like all things we do in medicine, you know, they're perishable skills, and even though it seems like a, a menial task sometimes, you know, just going through the list and, and setting up the tubing for the whole blood transfusion, you know, I think there would be benefit in, in having that list prepared in advance before you do a PFC exercise and you, you work in there and the team does an autologous transfusion, you know, mm -hmm. to, to one of their injured service members. And so that way it's a safe practice of, of a needed skill. And so that way when it comes down to they're using it real time, uh, there's no hesitation. They've been through this process. Everybody on the team knows their role. And I think it could uh, add a little bit something to training there. So that's what I would do different. I would probably incorporate it early. Uh, early enough to get involved in training as part of the protocol. Yeah, I think what you just touched on is a real big key, and especially in the, for the prolonged field care working group, is not just getting a widget or getting a process or having a piece of knowledge. It's actually translating that into actual training and getting used to actually doing it. I think that's the key. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. Just getting the experience of doing a transfusion, how long does it take to draw the blood off, how long does it take to put it back, um, what all the other little processes, getting the Elden cards and etc. and actually just doing it is pays enormous dividends in the end. Your entire team understands that this is going to take some time so it's not just a quick stick and it's going. Um, this is, this is going to be a, a process and they get to understand that and then they start to 
have a realistic expectation for it if they can work it into their own planning uh, for security or whatever else they have going on. Yeah, it's definitely important that the entire team, that's the whole approach to you know getting them involved with PFC training. This is just another thing that the team quite possibly could and should do you mm-hmm. know, to help facilitate the medic performing other medical interventions. So um, getting that into training absolutely has um, been key to us uh, doing well. Um, so now that you've, you've gotten this process in place and uh, it's up and running, have you, has any new problems that you haven't really, didn't really think of at the time, have they popped up? I, you know, it was just the, the turnout as a whole, you know, it's, it, the, the challenges of getting all the people to uh, the blood draw, the time that it takes to, to get them there and, and get the results back. There's just a little bit of challenges associated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing overwhelming. The, the command in general seems to be uh, supportive of things when you can say, hey, this could potentially save a guy's life. They, they generally support those things. So um, really just creating that white space on the calendar was a little bit of a challenge, but mm-hmm. it, we made it work. and. Uh, for. Yeah, excellent. Um, so now that it's been running for a period of time, how well has this program worked out? Um, well, the guys definitely seem to, to want this. This is definitely something that was driven from the ground up. Uh, they, the guys in general um, know the literature, they know what the ranger is doing, they, they ask the questions um, and, and how we can get this going as a program as a whole. Uh, and so there was a lot of individual efforts to, to get it going, um, but unifying it as a unit, you know, structuring it and, and getting the, the blood donation center to come out to you, uh, you really get much more participation that way. And so that's something I would have liked to have done uh, earlier, I guess, mm-hmm. is get that coordination in. Okay. In closing, is there any last minute advice you'd give to maybe a, a young battalion doc just coming in who is eager to make some change? and start something like this? Well, you know, when it comes to the walking blood bank specifically, I think just making sure you're, you're looking at it as part of your massage hemorrhage protocol, like that you're teaching the guys that, that they're doing all this at the same time. Um, I think, you know, getting a guy resuscitated fast, um, you know, training them, you know, hey, control the bleed, resuscitate, uh, identify that shock state early and determine, you know, your transfusion needs. Um, but these things takes time, you know, whole blood transfusion, uh, preparation of FDP, even TXA takes you know a, a minute or two. So, doing them all at once, getting the team trained up on this, and and, and getting this training into training early, right. uh, I think that's what I would recommend to a battalion doc is is you know really have them be thinking it's a hemorrhage protocol and, and get it involved in their PFC uh, training exercises. Hey, excellent, Eric. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out. Every boy is waiting there for you.